Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, we look at how the ability to make precise measurements of tiny quantities is crucial to two very different fields of scientific endeavor, metrology and particle physics. Coming up, we have an interview with a physicist who is trying to peer beyond the standard model of particle physics by determining the mass of the neutrino and the electric dipole moment of nuclei and particles. But first, we look at metrology inspired by the nature around us. Just the other day, I was idly looking out the window at a European robin flitting around the garden, and I wondered what it would be like to fly. But what would be even more difficult to imagine is what it would be like to see the Earth's magnetic field, which robins seem to be able to do. And just as birds have inspired us to create flying machines, the robin's quantum compass is inspiring the development of new devices for metrology, as I discovered in this interview. When quantum physics was first being developed, many scientists believed that living organisms were simply too warm and wet for quantum phenomena such as entanglement and coherence to play important roles in biological processes. More recently, however, evidence is growing that quantum effects could be involved in a range of biological processes, from photosynthesis to navigation. To chat about quantum phenomenon in living things, I'm joined down the line by Alex Jones, who is Principal Research Scientist at the UK's National Physical Laboratory. Hi, Alex. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hamish. It's a pleasure to be here. Many scientists believe that that quantum effects are involved in in navigation, and and particularly how some birds navigate. So, so w- what's going on there? H- how do some birds and other creatures navigate using quantum effects? Well, I think it's in- important for full disclosure for me to confess to not being a physicist. I'm very much a, a chemist. Um, and my interest in the area is, is in how this property known as quantum mechanical spin can uh, influence chemical and biochemical reactions. And this is the, the basis of what you're talking about. So as many of your listeners will, will no doubt know, uh, spin is a property that is possessed by certain particles, including electrons and protons. Um, and it is a, an intrinsic angular momentum. And if you take the example of, of electrons and protons, both those particles are charged. So The fact that they have spin, which I guess is analogous to the particle spinning like a top round its own axis, what they are is a a constantly moving charge. And all moving charge generates a magnetic field. It's the basis of electromagnetism. Um, So not only do they have this intrinsic angular momentum, they are also intrinsically magnetic, therefore, because of the spin. and so for the example of protons, this is actually exploited in um, things like magnetic resonance imaging. And in the case of electrons, the fact that they're intrinsically magnetic, this means that the course of certain chemical and biochemical reactions can be impacted by the presence of a, a, an exogenous magnetic field, if you like, 
And that's where um, animal magnetoreception comes in, because the Earth's magnetic field can be detected by a, a chemical reaction inside the organism, which sends a magnetic signal and results in a change in behavior. So the idea, Alex, is that um, certain animals have have special molecules um, inside of them that um, that that react to the Earth's magnetic field, and and that somehow couples to their nervous system, allowing them to to navigate. Is is that the the general idea? Yeah, that's that's the gist of it. Um, so the type of reaction that can be sensitive to the sorts of magnetic fields like that of the Earth are known as radical pair reactions. So radicals are molecules with unpaired electrons. And if you get a, a pair of radicals that encounter one another, the likelihood of whether they'll react or not is actually determined by the relative spin alignment of the unpaired electrons. Okay, And so this is called the spin state of the radical pair. And that spin state, and whether it's, it can react or not, can be influenced by the presence of an external magnetic field. And there's a protein known as cryptochrome, and this is proposed as being the primary magnetoreceptor in animals. And so cryptochrome generates these pairs of radicals photochemically, so that's a light-driven reaction. And theory suggests that the radical pairs generated in cryptochrome have some of the properties that would make them ideal as a, as a magnetic compass. Now, the idea is, is that the activated state of cryptochrome is thought to be modulated by the presence and direction of a magnetic field, and in turn, that sends a signal to the animal about its magnetic environment. And how, do, how does that link to, to your work at NPL? Is the idea that, um, that you could develop a, a sort of a synthetic version of these cryptochrome molecules and you could use them to perhaps make very precise measurements of magnetic fields? Is, is that the idea? It's certainly along those lines, yes. Um, maybe not a synthetic version, but an engineered version of cryptochrome is, is very possible. Um, and one of the real... Uh, benefits of magnetic fields is again exemplified by magnetic resonance imaging because in MRI what you do is you generate a very detailed image inside a living system and, and you do so by exploiting the interaction between the magnetic field generated by the scanner and the spin of the protons in um, organic molecules within the living thing. Now, the reason why magnetic fields are great for that is that they contain a very, very small amount of energy, very little energy at all. So even very large magnetic fields uh, deposit very small amounts of energy into the system. And that energy would be just be lost as noise in, in, in the thermal noise that is, is a living thing. So if instead of just imaging using magnetic fields, what we can do is take a magnetically sensitive tool that's been engineered from cryptochrome, say, put that in a target cell type that contains a system that we're interested in, say it's the expression of a gene or something, and then we can modulate the activity of cryptochrome using magnetic fields, then indeed what we're doing is we're stimulating the system. We're being able to then very accurately measure the result of that stimulation. But because we're using fields to do that, 
um, we, we impact very little else. And so, Alex, what, what, what's the ultimate goal of this research? Um, what, what, you know, how, how is this going to improve how we make measurements, how we make precise measurements? Sure. So I, I work for the biometrology group at NPL. And amongst other things, our, our focus is to improve reproducibility in biological measurement. There, there is a, I think it's fair to say, a reproducibility crisis in, in biomedical sector. Um, and also to characterize and minimize the uncertainties that are associated with biological measurements, because compared to physical measurements, those uncertainties can be really quite substantial. So one of the ideas is, is to do what I've described, which is to have ways of stimulating the process that you're interested in. And what that allows you to do is improve your temporal resolution of that measurement because you can switch things like magnetic fields or indeed light. We do this with light as well. Uh, you can switch them on and off. So you can really say, okay, I want to start the measurement at this moment. And that gives you a trigger. But because this is also a, a sort of a genetically encoded technology, i.e. you're taking the genes that encode a magnetically or light-sensitive protein and you're expressing it in a target cell, it also gives you better spatial resolution because you say, okay, I'm interested in this cell type, not that cell. So it gives you this sort of improved spatio-temporal resolution, as we call it. And light is proven to be really powerful in this context but the problem with light is that it doesn't get very deep inside biological tissue especially big opaque things like humans um, whereas magnetic fields because it interacts with so little goes straight through us so not only does it penetrate deeply but it also interacts with very little apart from what you want it to interact and in the context of as you described a uh, a noisy and wet environment with plenty of confounding variables anyway, if you can limit the confounding factors that you introduce with your measurement, then all the better. And, and so ultimately, could this be used, um, for, for, for example, to develop new medical imaging technologies or to improve on, on medical imaging technologies? I think that's certainly a possibility. Um, but remember what what we're what's distinct from something like MRI is that what we're doing is we're impacting a chemical reaction or the the kind of concentration of activated uh, cryptochrome in this case or an activated molecule. So instead of actually just benignly imaging, we can we can intervene, we can stimulate, we can use that as a, 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 an active tool. So I guess sort of extrapolating the, the thoughts I've shared so far, one of the places we could end up is with, with new magnetic-based therapies um, that are very targeted, again, because, you know, you target it to a specific cell type that's, that's of interest or even a particular gene of interest. But because you're interacting with very little else, you're really minimizing the, the potential side of so, so is the idea here that you could introduce molecules that, uh, I don't know, they're tagged or somehow connected with these cryptochrome molecules, you introduce them into the body, and then you can use magnetic fields to manipulate what they do. Um, you know, for example, you t switching on a process that attacks, uh, I don't know, um, cancer cells or something like that. Is it, could that be a goal? 
I guess you could see it as a type of gene therapy, right? So gene therapy is where you introduce um, genetic material to the cell, which then has a, a useful um, therapeutic activity, right? And this would be an example of that. But instead of actually tagging anything else with cryptochrome, you just have the genes that encode cryptochrome itself, right? And then what you have is, if it's an engineered version that has an impact on a, a chosen process, you have a magnetically controllable molecule. Um, I mean, we're not there yet. What we're doing at the moment is you know, testing, introducing it into cells and seeing what we control with it. But if we look into the future, that's certainly the direction of travel. And, and beyond, you know, this, I suppose, very fundamental research, l l looking forward into the future, are there, can you think of ways that quantum biological inspired technologies could affect our everyday life? Sure. I mean, we've, we've kind of touched on some of them in biology and, and medicine in, in the context of, of uh, novel therapeutics. Um, I mean, I'm doing some exciting work uh, with the University of Surrey at the moment, which has a doctoral training centre that's dedicated to quantum biology. I mean, that's the first of its kind in the world. Um, and we're looking at magnetic effects in, in uh, bacteria. Uh, and in including looking at magnetic effects on antibacterial agents. So that, that's one area that we're exploring. I'm also working uh, with the, the universities of Manchester and, and Leicester, looking at magnetic modulation of neuronal firing and being able to therefore control nervous system activity using magnetic fields. And, and again, that could be thought of in a potential therapeutic context, not only you know, as a way of investigating um, the signaling pathways in magnetoreception. More, more broadly, uh, I guess what one might be able to consider is um, taking the lessons that we learn from how nature uses magnetic fields and senses it and sends signals based on that to develop exquisitely sensitive navigation devices ourselves, you know, that could have civil or, or defence applications. And I'm also working uh, with a theoretician at the, at the University College London on exploiting quantum states of light to, to improve biological and biomedical imaging. So this includes things like entangled photon pairs. And, and, and what about um, applications such as uh, quantum information, quantum cryptography, quantum computing? Um, it, 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 is that something that you can look at from a, a, a chemical approach let's say well this is um starting to kind of get outside my comfort zone so i can't comment in detail about it the one thing i would say though is um, i know some of the efforts towards quantum computing for example are based on on spins right on spin qubits and and the basis of everything that i've been talking about so far, or most of the things I've been talking about, is, is about the spin states of radical pairs. You know, this is whether both spins are pointing in the same direction or um, they're pointing in anti-parallel uh, directions. So I think there's certainly um, something that's analogous there, and we certainly can't rule out that um, it might end up informing that, that world, but it's nothing that I'm actively involved in as yet. Well, that's great. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for being on the podcast. A real pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me.
And if you'd like to know more about Alex's research um, at NPL, just check out the notes for this podcast and there'll be links in there. Particle physics exists in the realm of superlatives. Unimaginably tiny particles are accelerated to near the speed of light by huge colliders, probing the limits of the standard model of particle physics. Yet sometimes, the quantities measured can be very subtle indeed, as you will discover in this interview with a physicist who is trying to measure two tiny quantities, the mass of the neutrino and the electric dipole moment of subatomic particles. Hello, I'm Kim, a science writer and a contributor to Physics World via the Student Contributor Network. Joining us today is Dr. Prajal Mohan Murthy. Dr. Murthy is an experimental nuclear physicist. He works as a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Chicago and is also a research scientist at the Argonne National Lab in the United States. Both these institutions are famous for being the hub where Enrico Fermi and his colleagues developed the atomic bomb during World War II. Dr. Murthy, thank you for joining us. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. So, tell us about your research. So, at the end of the day, I'm sort of measuring fundamental properties of particles and uh, studying something called fundamental symmetries. Why is it important to measure the properties of fundamental particles? We measure our height, we measure our weight. Why not that of fundamental particles? At the end of the day, that's what it comes all comes down to, that we want to know the nature of the universe that makes up everything around us. And sort of goes down to the questions of where we come from, what we're made of, and where we're headed. What experiments are you working on or have worked on in the past? Okay, so I work on a couple experiments at the moment. One of them is measuring the electric dipole moment of the neutron. And uh, I've also worked on an experiment in the past uh, that measured the mass of the neutrinos. And so neutrinos were discovered uh, in the late 50s, essentially neutral particles, but the mass of them uh, has not yet been measured. There are, of course, three kinds of neutrinos. The mass of neither of the three have been measured. So that is an effort that I'm interested in and involved in to some degree. And of course, the most up-to-date uh, experiment that I seem to spend most of my time on these days is, of course, measuring the electric dipole moment of the neutron. Looking forward, sort of, uh, we want to also expand to measuring the electric dipole moment of uh, certain nuclei, which we think is probably the best candidates to measure electric dipole moments in, such as uh, radium maybe protecting him, we can talk about that. Why is it important to know the mass of a neutrino or the electric dipole moment of a neutron? How does knowing these quantities tell us anything about the universe? Okay, so these quantities essentially form the building blocks of how we write down the description of the Big Bang and the early cosmology. Uh, That's where neutrino masses essentially contribute heavily to it's important to know the mass of uh, the neutrino because it describes the foundations of uh, how we describe uh, Big Bang and also 
it's sort of a very fundamental piece of information that we still don't know. Uh, the mass of most of the particles in standard model, the most up-to-date version of physics theory today, is known except for the neutrinos. And so that's why we want to measure uh, the mass of neutrino. The problem with the mass of neutrino is that it's quite tiny. It's probably the tiniest of all the known masses in the standard model, of all the particles in the standard model. And so it's been a hard challenge to tackle. And uh, here we are, many decades after its discovery, still trying to find its mass. So that's the part of uh, neutrino mass that, that still confounds us, I suppose. Uh, the part of electric dipole moment that I think is also sort of important is that electric dipole moment essentially of uh, small particles, uh, electrons, protons, neutrons, and sort of fundamental particles, violates something called uh, parity violation and uh, CP violation both. Uh, these are concepts uh, in, in fundamental symmetries, which essentially describe how the physics behaves under certain transformations, like uh, parity is essentially a mirror reflection in all three dimensions, uh, sort of x, y, z going to negative x, negative y, negative z transformation, and uh, uh, the charge transformation being transformation which takes uh, particles to antiparticles. And so under these transformations, back in 50s or so, uh, people sort of assumed physics to be mostly invariant, meaning that uh, physics wouldn't change if you sort of look at uh, processes in in the mirror, or if you look at if you look at them when you switch particles and antiparticles. And so the discovery of uh, a non-zero value for electric dipole moment shows us that these things are in fact violated, and that physics is not consistent when we switch particles to antiparticles. And so discovering a non-zero electric dipole moment has also been a long-standing challenge for over five decades now. And so the neutron is probably the first particle that people proposed measuring electric dipole moments owing to its zero charge. So we still continue to improve the technique, uh, come up with new techniques. And of course, uh, the sensitivity has been ever so increased over the last year five decades to an extremely small number, still not good enough to get down to the value that theory predicts, but getting ever so better every decade. So when we're talking about the electric dipole moment of a neutron and the mass of a neutrino, how small are we talking about? Okay, uh, I can put out some numbers here, I suppose. So the theory sort of predicts uh, a number for the neutron around uh, 10 to the negative 32 electron charge times centimeter. This just happens to be the unit the electric dipole moment community tends to use, the E.CM unit. So I'll stick to those units. But uh, yeah, so standard model uh, underlying theory essentially has a value of electric dipole moment, which is about 10 to the negative 32 ECM. And uh, the early measurements in 1950s or so started at around 10 to the negative 15 through 10 to the negative 17 ECM. So that's uh, almost uh, 18 orders of magnitude away from theory calculations. And now we stand uh, at about 10 to the negative 26. So we have gained about um, nine orders of magnitude essentially from the early measurements. 
over the last uh, few decades, but we still stand about seven orders of magnitude away at the very least from the theory calculations on the electric dipole moment measurement. And uh, the neutrino mass uh, is quite well known. The minimum value is quite well known from neutrino oscillations that have been quite well studied over the last few decades and quite well understood. Again, all Nobel Prize winning discoveries and measurements. So uh, the neutrino mass, on the other hand, is roughly about 10 micro EV on the lower edge because of oscillations we know the lower bound. And uh, today we get to about 1 EV. And so we are still about 6 orders of magnitude away or 5 orders of magnitude away there, perhaps. The hope is, of course, that the value that we end up measuring at the end of the day is a tiny bit larger, or at least substantially larger than the minimum value that's predicted in theory. And so uh, that's always the hope, and that's always been the motivation to study and measure these things uh, from where they stand at the moment. Those values are tiny. Should scientists keep trying to measure something so close to zero? There could be something that we don't yet know in theory. There could be something beyond the standard model, as physicists like to call it, which could, in theory, increase the number of both of these parameters. So what that means is that we got to keep pushing, we got to keep measuring, we got to keep improving our apparatus, and we got to keep measuring what best we can at the moment, as long as it's something better than the previous measurement. And so there's always a chance, there's always a discovery potential that when you do this, that we do measure either of these two parameters, and then that's a discovery right there. And so there's always some discovery potential. There's always some hope, rather, that there is some phenomena increasing the magnitude of these measurables uh, from the very basic lower bound numbers. And so uh, the instruments right now, the sensitivities of them are, like I said, about six to seven orders of magnitude away from possibly measuring the values. It's still worthwhile to sort of measure the numbers where they stand, even if it ends up being a number that we cannot measure and we just impose an upper bound on these numbers because we can always rule out certain kinds and certain classes of beyond the standard model particle physics uh, theories that may predict higher values. And so it's always a good tool to sort of measure these numbers and put an upper bound on them, even if we don't end up measuring any. And so the instruments that we have today don't really get down to the lower bound standard model values that I just mentioned, but uh, they do improve the sensitivity ever so slightly every decade. So how do you measure something so small? The electric dipole moment uh, is essentially measured by applying electric and magnetic fields. This uh, technique called uh, Ramsey oscillation, where which allows us to effectively pick out the precession frequency of the neutron. So that gives us the precession frequency of the neutron in presence of electric and magnetic fields. And of course, the neutron feels a large magnetic field because it has a large magnetic moment, a relatively large magnetic this. But its electric dipole moment is quite small, or almost zero here, for the purposes of measurement. And so the spin precession frequency upon the application of the electric field would change ever so slightly 
and and that is essentially what we use to measure the electric dipole moment of the neutron. Now the neutrino mass comes from beta decay of uh, tritium, where of course the beta decay involves neutrons inside the nucleus of tritium decaying into protons and electrons and antineutrino. The antineutrino takes away some energy from the process, and so we essentially measure the amount of energy taken away by the neutrino. And when the kinetic energy of the neutrino is zero, the, the amount of energy that the neutrino takes away is essentially the mass of the neutrino. And so that's how we essentially measure the mass of neutrinos, is to very precisely measure the energy spectra of the decay product in a tritium parity. And uh, this gives us a sensitivity that is quite competent with uh, the most modern units on neutrino mass. In fact, that is how neutrino masses have been measured for the last few decades. That's really interesting. What does your daily schedule look like then? Okay, so my daily schedule uh, as an experimentalist sort of uh, changes year to year. An experiment uh, that measures these quantities essentially precision physics because we are looking at the tenth decimal waves essentially, hypothetically speaking. Um, we are essentially measuring something very precise. And so these are essentially precision experiments that require us to understand the systematics and the underlying characteristics of our apparatus extremely precisely. So what that means is that we do a lot of systematic tests before we take any data at all. And these data these days takes years before they become statistically competent with the last best experiment. And so putting all of that together, it sort of comes down to about a 10-year cycle where we propose an idea for a new experiment to sort of show that the idea works well, validate that idea, and then build an apparatus and take data on that apparatus while taking systematic data also, and then finally analyzing the data and of course publishing it. And so this is sort of a 10-year cycle, roughly. And uh, so it really my daily schedule depends upon which phase of experiment we are in. And so it could involve anywhere from essentially sort of back of the envelope calculations that I can do with a piece of pencil and paper uh, for my proposal stage, or it could be sort of the simulation stage where we're validating the idea, which could involve a lot of computer programming. And uh, it could also be sort of the data taking phase where I'm tinkering with the apparatus. Uh, on a day-to-day -day schedule, and uh, at the end of the day, but I can go back to the analysis where again I'm working on the computer, uh, fixing a code to analyze sort of sizable data that comes out of these experiments. At the end of the day, and so it could be any of these phases. But a typical day, I'd assume that I'm sort of spending a little bit of time on uh, analysis tasks from previous experiments. Uh, I'm spending a little bit of my time thinking about new ideas, and I'm spending a little bit of time tinkering with my this year. Wow. It's not about the work in a day, because a project can take a decade. For your 10-year cycle, which stage or year are you in right now when it comes to measuring the mass of a neutrino or the electric dipole moment of a neutron? Okay. So, for the neutrino mass measurement, that was my early doctoral part. And uh, so it's been about 
five to seven years since I started doing that experiment. I'm not a, actively a part of the, that experiment at the moment, but as an associate member of the experiment, I suppose there have been papers in the past that I've published. And so the phase of the experiment that I was involved in, in the early doctoral degree part of it, was sort of the validating part still. And so it was five years ago at the level at which we were still validating the idea and uh, doing tests in a smaller setup where we could demonstrate the idea and uh, show that as a as a viable pathway form. Now that experiment, of course, has done that, and uh, they're effectively scaling up the apparatus to uh, a size which will then give us the best value of the universe. Now, in the electric dipole moment, which is sort of occupied, I would say, the last five to ten years of my life more proactively, the experiment sort of has come to an end, at least the phase that I was involved in, and now we are sort of looking forward to the next. So my doctoral degree for about seven years or so was uh, mostly uh, towards the later edge of the spectra, of 10-year spectra. So when I joined the experiment, uh, it was still sort of putting parts together from all the detectors and characterizing them and understanding the behavior of each detector. And then, of course, uh, to the middle of my graduate school, it was uh, taking data already. And towards the end of my graduate school, it was uh, publishing data. And that was just a few years ago. So we are still in that phase, essentially, of publishing our understanding and analysis of the results. What other quantities would you want to measure next? What other experiments are you planning to carry out in the future? Yeah, so these two quantities would be sort of the breakthrough measurements where we have a first value. And of course, the techniques that we use to measure neutrino mass uh, could also be adapted to measure certain other uh, parameters that describe standard model. Like, for example, that could also be used to measure uh, better decay parameters, which uh, have been measured before. But of course, this could be sort of the way to more precisely measure those older values that have been measured in other systems. It's always a good thing to check the consistency between measurements and single neutron better decay parameters have been measured with neutrons. Uh, we can, of course, measure them with the species which we use to measure the prima mass. That could be one particular way. Now, in electric dipole moment measurements, there's been quite a quite a renaissance, I would say, of the values that you can extract from the traditional Ramsey-type measurements of neutron dipole moment. Now, what that means is that uh, recent papers that, that we published uh, during our effort here was to show that these these experiments are also sensitive to something called the axion. Now, the axion has also been a long theorized particle, which hasn't been measured yet. It's a good dark matter candidate, and so people are interested to see all facets of axion search for them in every single place that one could in theory search for. So it turns out that the neutron electric dipole moment experiments or any dipole moment experiment that essentially we can conceive about can, in theory, be sensitive. And so there has been uh, searches for axions in in, in uh, experiments measuring electric dipole moments. And so, yes, so we can search for other particles altogether using these experiments. And so 
these are sort of uh, multifaceted experiments which generally have a large physics goal that is beyond the primary value of measuring these two numbers. Can you describe the general trends in the field and what you're looking forward to the most in the future? Okay, so during my doctoral study a few years ago, uh, I sort of saw the rate at which the neutron EDM was being improved, the sensitivity to the rate at which the neutron EDM was being improved, the, the upper limit, the upper constraint that experiments impose on me. And it turned out that uh, in the first five or so decades that the measurements were being done, this was growing at the rate of about an order of magnitude per decade. And so we went from 10 to the negative 15, 10 to the negative 17 numbers to about 10 to the negative 22, 24 uh, numbers quite rapidly over a period of five decades. But since then, in the last 10 years or so, in the last two decades or so, this rate has sort of slowed to about maybe one and a half to two orders of magnitude per decade. So you see it's sort of an exponential decrease at the rate at which we are improving the sensitivity. And essentially, one has to expect that because we are essentially using a very similar technique and everyone suffers the exponential decay curve of sensitivity. And so that's essentially what we see here. And so I was sort of concerned whether we'll ever get to the value measuring electrodipole moments in my lifetime. <laughs> and so uh, we sort of started to think about ways out of this uh, problem of uh, the neutron electrodipole moment being very small. Of course, the electron also has dipole moment, which is further smaller in standard model. And so we didn't even want to sort of go in that direction. But as a, as a means to measure or be sensitive to values that may be within the standard model, we sort of now look forward towards measuring electrodipole moments in uh, heavy nuclei that are deformed. And so uh, nucleus is generally spherical, uh, roughly spherical, but they can be deformed. They can look oblate. Uh, they can look oblate in eight different directions. They can look oblate along the axis of spin. They can look uh, oblate along the axis of spin or perpendicular axis of spin. So there are many uh, directions of oblation that you can think of where the nucleus is deformed. Not only that, you can also have other deformations of nucleus, like nucleus can be deformed uh, uh, like two liquid drops merging. And so there could be higher order deformations in, in, in terms that I could put. So these certain deformations are more sensitive to the electric dipole moment, and of course the magnetic quadrupole moment, which is uh, a, a corollary measurement that can be done to show the same properties of uh, CP violation and P violation. And these deformed nucleus are extremely sensitive to such parameters. And so the advantage of measuring um, electric dipole moment and quadrupole moments in these nucleus is that the standard model value, which was 10 to the negative 32 in the neutron, quite small, in the electron, further smaller, possibly 10 to the negative 44, but even though newer measurements are putting that value at about 10 to the negative, newer theory calculations are putting that value at about 10 to the negative 40 ECM for electrons. 
tiny, but the deformed nucleus enhances these numbers by about three, could be four orders of magnitude, depending upon the way that these nucleus have deformed. And so I'm personally looking forward to this sort of measurement, which uh, sort of brings up the lower bound of uh, standard model value to a higher value such that the experimental improvement that we as experimentalists have to put in comprises of smaller order, smaller number of um, factors of 10 that we have to improve upon over the next few years to decades before we get to the baseline threshold of standard model value. And so that's what I look forward to in the electrodiacal moment experiments. And in fact, most of my current day work, uh, my current day postdoctoral work, is in fact involved with uh, finding these oblate nuclei that are highly deformed, that have a large sensitivity to electrodiacal moment, so that when we're done with this sort of study here, we know the best candidate that has the highest standard model prediction theory prediction of the electrodiacal moment, and we go with the experiment with the latest technology on the day that it is known, and uh, hopefully the number of degrees of mag the orders of magnitude that we have to improve our experiment by is, is, is not six or seven, but it's hopefully three to four. So we have an enhancement from the oblate deformation of the nucleus that could help us. So that's what I'm sort of looking forward to these days and investing most of my time into. Oh, that sounds super exciting. Dr. Murthy, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. We wish you all the best uh, of luck with your research. Thank you. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Alex Jones, Prawell Rohan Murthy, and Shein Kim for joining me this week. And a special thanks to our producer, Callum Jelf. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, if you've ever dreamed about becoming an astronaut, check out Physics World's book review of Dream Big, How to Reach for Your Stars by the biologist Abigail Harrison who is well on her way to achieving her ultimate goal of being the first person to walk on Mars. The review is by Andrew Glester, and you can find it in the Opinion and Reviews section of the Physics World website. Physics World